Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Slate Money is sponsored by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear, by going to volvocars.com slash US. And by Birchbox Man. With all the challenges you tackle each day, looking sharp shouldn't have to be one of them. For $20 a month, Birchbox Man will ship you a lineup of gear and grooming essentials, from style upgrades to shaving supplies, direct to your doorstep. Get 100 Birchbox points, that's a $10 value, with a new subscription when you go to birchbox.com and use the promo code MONEY. Hello, and welcome to the Time to Grow Up edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon Effusion. I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. And Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. Hello, Jordan. But most fabulously and most importantly, I'm also joined here. Now, this is an interesting one. Kathy and Jordan are in New York. I am here in St. Paul, Minnesota with Ron Lieber of the New York Times. Hello. This is Ron. Ron has a new book out, which we're going to um, talk about in a minute. And you're going to love him and love it. Um, and we're also going to talk about how the Red Cross managed to spend half a billion dollars in Haiti and managed to build like six houses. Um, and we're going to talk about Uber again because we haven't talked about Uber in a couple of weeks. And apparently if you have a money podcast, there's some kind of rule that you always have to talk about Uber. But this time, um, because we have Ron on the show and he's written a lot about this, we're going to talk about the insurance aspects of Uber. Um, but um, Kathy. Yes. You and Ron are the only people here who have kids. So I'm going to let you drive this particular bus. <laughs> <And, laughs> yeah. it's, it's a fantastic book, Ron. I just want to say that it's called The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. And I have a, like a long list of questions. I, I'll get to the few of them at least, Ron. Um, but could you just first of all talk about who your audience is and why you started this book? My audience is any parent who has more money than average. You know, if you're lucky enough to have uh, more than what you need and you can afford some of what you want, if you have uh, money left over, that means you have choices to make and restrictions to put into place uh, about money and how you spend it and think about it and talk about it with your kids. And, you know, I wrote the book because I thought that there was a direct connection between talking about money and teaching kids values and printing them all of the, you know, virtues and character traits we want to drill into to their silly little heads. And um, there's a lot of silence around money in families and in the world. And I wanted to break it. 
Yeah, so you set that straight, like the first page of the book. You're basically like, people are afraid of talking about money. We should do that. We should do that every day, and we should do that in all sorts of ways. And and I just want to quote my favorite line from the book, which comes at the end of chapter one, which is exactly what Ron just said. But he says it so well in this book. He goes, as long as you're grateful for what you have, share it generously with others and spend it wisely on the things that ma- make you happiness, there's no shame in having more or having less. I love that because there's, I think most of us have this kind of weird shame about either having not enough money or having too much money. And there's this whole taboo. You didn't really go into the sort of origins of the money taboo, but it's bad for kids, right? I think it is. They come to understand um, both sort of implicitly and explicitly that having these conversations and even asking the questions is somehow impolite or impolitic or age inappropriate. Uh, more often than not, uh, traditionally, especially adults silence them when they ask how much money their parents make or have or they go looking up the price of their home on the internet and get the zestimate and then have a bunch of questions about it, uh, you know, as, uh, uh, you know, after they've taken a good look at what Zillow thinks their home is worth. And, you know, sometimes more often than not, even their parents try and shut them up uh, because they think it's none of their business. But of course, it's their business. Money is a big driver of human behavior and it's their job to figure out how the world works. You know, Ron, one related point that I thought was really perceptive and and I was really just personally glad to see in the book was you talk about how kids are already actually pretty class conscious from a young age, um, especially if they're going to a private school or going, you know, or in a uh, a public school in a fairly affluent suburb. I'm just curious if you talk about that. I mean, was there a sense of denial among parents that you talked to and and, and researchers or while you're writing this book that, that kids could even begin to understand this stuff? Well, I mean, when it comes to class and social class in particular, I don't think parents are in denial about the fact that kids understand it and have questions about it. I think they're in denial about the damage that we do by shutting them up or avoiding the topic. Um, I think they just think that it's easier to have these conversations. It's certainly easier or easier not to have the conversations. It's certainly easier not to have the conversation if you're uh, the person who has more than average. If you're the person who has less than average in your community, quite often the kids will come to you with questions that sound a lot like accusations. You know, why is it that you chose to be a social worker or a psychologist or a preacher or a journalist, God forbid, when you could have been a lawyer or an investment banker or a venture capitalist because then we would have a ski condo or, you know, we could go on nicer vacations. And so, you know, you can deny it all you want. You can avoid the topic all you want. But kids are are, are going to have these questions and they're going to notice things. I mean, they come home at the age of five or six and they talk about who in their class has a mansion, not like they know who that is. And, you know, they begin to understand and sort people out uh, pretty early on. I mean, it's just what human beings do. We're hardwired for social comparison. One one of the themes which runs through the book, um, for better or for worse, is private schools, which uh, I never realized that they were actually quite a big thing in in the U.S., not just in sort of swanky towns like New York, but I guess everywhere. Um, And it got me to wondering, I mean, especially if you're not in – you know, super wealthy. Is it sensible to just have a conversation with your kids if you have the option to send them to private school and say, well, you know, we have the option. It's going to cost us a, you know, bucket load of money and we could spend that money on family vacations and all manner of books and this and that and trips to Disney World instead. Which one would you choose? Because if you do go to private school, you get more of that class consciousness, right? I think you do. The question is, how old does the child have to be before you trust their response that are willing to act on it? I, theoretically, you know what's best for your five or six-year-old going into kindergarten better than the kindergartner does. But when the eighth grader who's in public middle school is you know, looking at high schools – then it's a an open question. I you know I think much depends on the financial circumstances of your family and also you know what the college picture looks like too. Because if you're going to spend a big pile of money on private school and then that's going to require the child to borrow a pile of money to go to college, then 
you know, that's on the kid, right? So it depends on your circumstance. But yeah, I mean, I did talk a fair bit about um, private schools just because many of them have felt forced to address the dish, uh, issue openly um, because they are money-based institutions. Uh, if they're honest with themselves, they realize that uh, 60 or 70 or 80 percent of their families, the ones who are paying full price and are not getting financial aid, you know, if you can write that kind of check, $25,000, $40,000 a year per kid in New York City, you are probably in the 1% or close to it. And so you've created an institution that everybody has raised their hand to join uh, where the majority of the people are extremely well off. And it's just very, very hard to deny that fact or ignore uh, the kids pressing questions about it. So you have a lot of emphasis on choices you make because, of again, your audience is like people who have enough money. And it starts really early. You You suggest, and it's like more than just having an allowance, you actually suggest that kids have three different jars to keep their allowance money in. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I don't think they should have a choice in the matter about that because what we're trying to do there is get them to practice. To me, money is a tool for learning more than anything else like books or art supplies or electric guitars or whatever else you would you know, supply them with under normal circumstances if you can, um, if you can afford it, right? So um, – so, you know, they get their uh, allowance, their pocket money, uh, and they divide it into three, um, spending, saving, and giving. And this is what adults do too, right? If you're reasonably healthy, 75% of your money gets spent or maybe 80%, you know, and you save 10, 15% for retirement or your kid's college education, then hopefully you have some left over for people who need it more than you. That's, that's adult budgeting. I think we want to teach kids to do it too, get them ready and let them learn to start making trade-offs. Another thing you talk about is how kids should work. I really like this. I, I, I feel like as a mother of three in New York City, not a lot of the other parents I talk to um, have chores for their kids or even. Um, um, and there's quite a bit of discussion about what kind of jobs should they should get and what kind of work they should do. Um, but a lot of the really amazing examples in your book um, correspond to people who have farms and they have lots of cows to take care of. I wonder what kind of advice you'd give for you know math nerd parents on what ki- <laughs> what kind of natural work their kids could do besides the dishes and the differential equations. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, kids long to display their competence. Uh, You know, they're looking for ways to earn and be productive. Uh, I kept hearing as I was reporting the book from all of these parents whose kids were obsessed with recycling. They wanted to take the bottles and the cans and divide them up and take them to the, you know, scrapyards or recycling centers where they could drop them into the machines or hand them over to a human and come out with, you know, tens and tens of dollars. Like it's no skill labor something that um, you know they can do without much help other than the ride to the center and you know they want to earn they want to work and they are capable of way more than we give them credit for that's why I went hunting around on dairy farms because I knew that those are really labor-intensive places and, and kids as young as five have real work I spent a bunch of time on a farm and northern Utah where the five-year-old drives the tractor and he shoots the gun to scare the birds away from the cows. I mean, kids can do stuff. And even if you're in the suburbs or or in the city, uh, they can certainly make you dinner, right? This is well within their grasp. Uh, And when they get older, you know, I think we should encourage them. At least one summer, they should have a paying job, you know, preferably in the service industry where people will treat them badly and they'll learn how to react and interact and behave. I would. I mean, it's the one time reading the book where I thought, oh, I could do with a kid when I learned that they would make me coffee in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can totally run the coffee maker as, you know, young as five or six if they've got to step up to the counter. You, you know, if they're grinding beans, well, there's pretty much no way for them to cut their little fingers off in those. I think you'd have to try really, really hard <laughs> to make that happen. So, yeah, by all means, uh, have, the, the, have a child if only to be your personal barista. Um, and it seems to me that a lot of this advice is actually some sense, in some sense for the parents rather than for the kids or the way the kids should be behaved around the parents. I mean, to some extent, you're suggesting, hey, parents, calm down. They're going to get into college even if they have a summer job once. You know, in the last chapter where you talk about gratitude, it's it's more like a suggestion to the whole family, not just to the children. 
Yes, I think that's true. You know, I wrote the book with parents in mind, and as soon as it came out, people kept sending me pictures of their children reading the book. The kids kept taking the books and, you know, sneaking off into bed with them and reading under the covers. (laughs) <laughs> this was not something I had anticipated, but I realized, you know, when you write a book and you put the word spoiled on the front and you send it home with parents, of course, the kids are going to wonder <laughs> what the hell is going on, right? So they wanted to know what the deal was. Um, but most of them I've talked to seem pretty satisfied with what I had to say. I, I actually encourage parents to um, raise their kids' allowances in many instances. And you encourage parents to, to listen to their kids and, and in a way, like, let their kids guilt them into giving away more money because i mean in most families i know certainly in my family it's generally the kids who have more of those sort of charitable tendencies and say oh we know you you're the one saying you should absolutely give money to panhandlers if you're with your kids not because it's necessarily good for the panhandler but because it teaches compassion yeah i think you start that way with the young kids because I mean, look, I mean, we know that there are um, potential problems with handing money out to strangers uh, in a variety of circumstances. But, um, you know, I, I think we want our kids to see us acting generously. And then when they're seven or eight, you know, we, we can begin to talk to them about, you know, why it may not make the most sense to give money in that moment to that person in that way, even though we can go home and sort of support that cause. Um, but, uh yeah, look, it's, I think it's important for parents to realize in general that they are watching our every move, our every financial move, every car we buy, uh, the ornament on the hood, the labels on the clothing, and the brands on the shopping bag, and they are getting ready to mimic our behavior or you know, potentially reject it. Um, but we should be talking to them about this stuff. I mean, they're already picking it up in the ether. Um, We are going to move on to one of the worst charities that you can give money to in a second. But I have to just stop for a second here and say with great enthusiasm that we have an actual car ad right now. I have never been so excited about an ad in my life. But honestly, this um, this podcast is sponsored by Volvo. Yeah, the massive great car company, they are sponsoring Slate Money. Thank you, Volvo. And so the idea is that they have this thing called the Wonder of Summer event. So it allows you to go out and do all of those wonderful things, go to adult summer camp or kids' summer camp and go out into the wilderness because there's always some wilderness nearby, and you get a month's payment on Volvo. They will spend that money on you, and you will also get up to five years of coverage, including wear and tear. It's all excellent. I'm all into Volvo right now, and you go to volvocars.com slash US, or you test drive a Volvo, and they're great. So, Volvo, thank you. Um, Ron, I have a question for you. Uh, with the possible exception of, you know, institutions which already have $30 billion endowments, where is the worst place you could give your money? To, what's the worst non-profit, like big non-profit you could give your money, but yet which everyone seems to give their money to? You know the answer to this. <laughs> I'm going to flunk this test because the name of the institution is not coming the to name mind. Of the in- no, okay. So <laughs> this is a hobby horse of mine. And I'm very, very thankful to Justin Elliott and the various people at ProPublica and NPR who have been bashing this horse for a while. But oh, have that one. <laughs> come, up, come up with the best, I mean, not or the worst, or like the most shocking example yet. And I'm going, you're, none of my listeners will be surprised to hear that I'm talking about the Red Cross. Um, the Red Cross is this weird institution. It's basically a relatively efficient blood bank with this bizarre emergency response charity attached, um, which works really badly and is in all ways except for one. It works extremely good at raising money. It, It has billions of dollars donated to it every year, especially when there's an emergency anywhere in the world. Um, anytime that any big organization, a telethon or Facebook or anything like that says, oh, there's been an earthquake, oh, there's been a tsunami, oh, there's been something, you know, immediately they say, we're going to raise money and give it to the Red Cross, even though it has been demonstrated time and time again that the Red Cross has 
just is just dreadful at spending this money. And the prime example, which which ProPublica did a wonderful job of um, uncovering this past week, is what happened in Haiti after the earthquake. And they raised half a billion dollars, way more money than they knew what to do with, because that's what they do. They just raise money. It's, they're a money-raising machine. And even when they had more money than they knew what to do with, they kept on raising money and kept on raising money, partly because they had a deficit which they wanted to cover. And then they promised everyone, because they love these idiotic things called earmarks, that they would spend it all in Haiti. And there was no real way of spending it in Haiti because the Haitian economy was far too small to absorb that kind of money. Um, and there's all manner of other things, but mainly because they just know nothing of Haiti and they would just pay people six-figure salaries to fly down to Haiti, not speak Creole, mess everything up. And seriously, I mean, the 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 um, ProPublica report has managed to find six houses is basically what they've managed to find in terms of the actual output from this $500 million investment. And there's a very, very, very strong, high degree of probability reading between the lines of this report. You can't, you can't show this empirically. You can't be sure about this. That actually they've done more harm than good. So I think one thing you you said before, I, it should, I want to revisit it, um, which is, again, the Red Cross here decided they raised all this money and then decided they were going to, into the construction build, business. They were going to build homes, right? And the problem there is that they building homes is really complicated, especially in a country with a convoluted economy and really poorly regulated land rights and things like that, like Haiti, um, and very little infrastructure to boot. And so they go into this country where they have very little experience with the, the, the people themselves and when they have very little experience doing the thing they say they're going to do. And of course, they go and fail at it. And I think the the, the fundamental issue here, and, and it's not as if nobody was able to build homes in Haiti. The, the ProPublica report points out that other organizations managed to construct about 9,000 homes, even though they ran into similar challenges involving things like land rights and infrastructure. Um, and so I, I, I think, again, there's this problem that the Red Cross has become in the public's mind, this all-purpose disaster relief organization that they just come in and they're supposed to swoop in and save the day somehow, even though they have none of those competencies. And Especially not in places like Haiti. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just there's they and I don't I don't know how you how do you fix this situation? I mean, what is I mean, once once something is branded in the public's mind, essentially, as the group you go to, I mean, maybe the White House stops doing telethons with saying donate to the Red Cross. That might be a good place to start. But I mean, how how do you uh, how do you turn this around to get people to consider donating elsewhere to someone who isn't just a big blood? Yeah, bank? well, that's, that's a question I have for you because you're you're the American here who understands these things. You've written a lot about giving. Why is it that people insist on continuing to give money to the Red Cross, even though we've here, time and time and time again, about how incredibly wasteful the, the, those donations are. I think it's a reasonably small percentage of the American public and even the listening public for whom the you know uh, the the Red Cross is uh, inefficient. Um, whom that message is is actually reached, right? But because you know, I. I I hate to be so like utility oriented around this. Um, I thought the ProPublica report and all of the coverage that they've done uh, has been fantastic, but I'm in the business of helping people figure out what to do, not so much, you know, the bad actors, but okay, so what's the right answer here? Like, how do you, you know, win life and money life in general? And I don't know what the alternative is. Uh, nobody has said to me, the next time this happens, Here's where to donate, and then they and and nobody pops up when these disasters happen. Um, you know the earthquake in Nepal. Nobody was popping up and say no, give here, not to the American Red Cross or whoever else. Um, okay, well, I mean, let, let me so, let me pop so we could, up and we could, answer that question. Yeah, we could help people you. with that right here. S since um, since this is something which I, I I used to reliably get a lot of very angry letters even unto the CEO of Thomson Reuters whenever I, there was like an earthquake in Japan or, uh, uh, or some other natural disaster, I'd be like, don't donate to the Red Cross, don't donate to the, to, to the earthquake in Japan. There is this um, very noble uh, desire to help when we see these images in the wake of a tragedy. And people want to help 
that tragedy. But the fact is, at that point, it's too late. You have the disaster relief teams who have whatever money they have. They are going to go in and do whatever they do. At the margin, if you donate fifty bucks two days later, that fifty bucks is going to be actually much more useful for the next tragedy.、Um, one of the Big tra- tragedies of tragedies, if you will, is this whole concept of earmarked funds, which the Red Cross really got into after nine eleven.、Um, the Red Cross raised huge amounts of money after nine eleven, and、um, as we all know, there was almost nothing to spend it on because you know either you died or you didn't, pretty much. And then there was this outcry. There was this bizarre public outcry. Where people said we gave money to nine eleven, and you have to find something nine eleven related to do with the money, because otherwise it's a bait and switch. And so ever since then, the Red Cross has said, well, if you give money to Haiti, we have to spend it in Haiti, even when we have more money than we know what to do with, and we're just throwing it away and wasting it. If you give money to nine eleven, we have to spend it on nine eleven, even though we have more money to, than we know what to do with, and we're just throwing it away and wasting it. What you should do is give. Unrestricted funds to an organisation like Doctors Without Borders, which listeners to this podcast know very well,、um, which will be there, you know, in advance, and will also react to tragedies which maybe aren't quite as photogenic and which don't make the nightly news, and which are just as tragic and just as important. So, unrestricted funds, you know, use that impulse that you have,、um, and and just give it to an organisation which. Which has demonstrated the ability to react swiftly and efficiently across the world wherever the need is. Can I, can I ask a dumb question?、Um, you know, going back to the earmark. I know you don't like earmarked funds, but Felix, what's wrong with the idea of the helicopter drop of money? I know, like actually dropping money out of a helicopter doesn't make sense, but you hear about <laughs> these experiments. Yeah, but like in, in, in poor African countries, where you like via a cell phone, you give cash. Oh, that's great! No, I, no, that's I'm wondering why didn't we do called... that? Why didn't the Red Cross do that in Haiti? Well, because I mean, yeah, people would go nuts if I mean if people well, well, were no, just I mean, giving so... Haitians money, people would not. I don't think react well to that. They want to see a house built. No, but I'm just saying, like, like I was in Haiti in November,、yeah. and it is an incredibly informal and chaotic、uh, economy. But if you gave people money, they would buy houses. I mean, they would buy the material to make their own house. I mean, that's the that's the point of that. Yeah, that, there's a there's a charity called Gift Directly, which is a great charity, and a lot of people really love it, and I can endorse it. And、um, they don't work in Haiti; they basically work only in sub-Saharan Africa, as far as I know. Um, but in principle, yes. If you had a mechanism for just finding poor people in Haiti, which is pretty damn easy, and giving them、um, a couple of thousand bucks as a one-off, you know, gift, and say, "Go spend this money,"、um, that would have been a vastly better way to spend the money that was raised than what we actually saw, which was this. Economy, which was dominated by NGOs, basically ever since the earthquake in Haiti, the entire Haitian economy is dominated by NGOs. Almost every skilled Haitian is working for an NGO rather than for a company which is actually making something. And it, and you know, the government and everyone else is basically just a way of of like, how do we manage to get paid by NGOs? In a way, it's the same thing. But as we saw in the ProPublica report, you know, you had the the expats who were making 140 grand, and then the highest paid Haitian was ma- making 42 grand or something. It's it's the wrong way around. I do think there's also just just to say it again, there's this expectation on the part of the public that these organizations go in there and build things, like bring things that there. And this was this was sort of part of、um, the Red Cross's thinking is there's this part of the article where an executive says we don't. We want to know which projects will give us the most publicity, and if you're thinking in those terms, and that's extremely cynical, but it also kind of、um, because publicity is how you yeah, raise money, and yeah, exactly, cross is a money raising machine. Exactly, and, and when you stop and think about what brings publicity, it's pictures of houses and and ambulances and kids being given bottles of water. It's not just handing people cash. So, Ron, do Americans have a problem with?、Um, Just giving money directly. Do they want to see stuff? And do they feel bad when people start criticizing the Red Cross because so many of them give money to the Red Cross? I don't know if anyone feels bad about the American Red Cross in particular, but I think we've been trained to be able to 
get precisely what we want exactly when we want it, you know, delivered with the push of a button on a phone. And organizations like uh, Donors Choose or Kiva have started to train us, particularly, you know, younger adults, that you can, in fact, direct your giving, not just to the place or the occasion or the event that moves you, but to the very person, the very classroom, the very project that you want to fund. And although, although why wouldn't Kiva's we want to case, do that? That's not actually the case. In Donors yeah. Jew's case, you, you really are. Kiva is a little bit of a bait and switch on that one. But. Right. But, but we've been sold, yes. and let's call it what it is, um, we've been sold this idea that we are entering an era of philanthropy where you can give directly uh, precisely uh, at the moment of greatest need to the people or the projects that need your money most in that moment. And when we're told by someone like you that actually the best thing you can do is to give uh, you know, unrestricted funds uh, and you know, who knows where they'll go, but just take our word for it that they'll be used efficiently, that doesn't feel as good, right? We want to feel good. This is part of the reason why we give. Right. And, and we, we need to end on, on, on the PR note. Yes. So – I just want uh, to emphasize the thing that really made me uh, drop my jaw uh, when I was reading that ProPublica piece was uh, when the spokeswoman for the Red Cross uh, said to the reporter uh, that his line of inquiry uh, with some of the people on the ground in Haiti had the potential to incite violence. Now, Felix made the point that the violence might actually be committed by... By the donors of the Red Cross. But yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's... it's um, The thing which annoyed me the most was the, this kind of weird defensiveness by the Red Cross. All nonprofits make mistakes. All projects go wrong. The only way you can really run an effective non-project is by embracing your failures and looking at them in a clear-eyed way and saying, yes, well, that didn't work. We're going to do better next time. But the Red Cross refuses to do that and is just sticking to its story that it has changed four and a half million lives in Haiti and has done amazing amounts of good. And so long as they remain in this sort of publicly delusional stance, they're never ever going to improve. I was going to say, I don't know if you can admit to the public that you blew half a billion dollars on a failed uh, redevelopment attempt. That might be a little too much bravery for any organization. But I, uh, I, I guess I basically agree with you about your bigger point. So we are going to move on now. And we have another sponsor this week. It's Birchbox. Women have been subscribing to Birchbox for years, and now there is a subscription just for men. You get, for $20 a month, you're going to like this. You're going to get a whole box of gear and grooming and videos and advice and just basically things which make you smell better and look better and generally be confident and wonderful. So head over to Birchbox.com, use the promo code MONEY, to get 100 Birchbox points when you get your subscription. So that's $10 in real money, which you can spend on anything you want. And then you'll also be getting amazing boxes every month with, you know, brands like Baxter of California and Ursa Major. And it's, it's a fun box to get. And who doesn't like getting things in the mail? So, Birchbox. Jordan. Yeah. Talk to us. Well, yeah, I think you should start talking to Ron about Uber insurance because Ron's kind of the expert on this. Well, I'm going to start off talking to telling a little story to listeners, partly based off an article that Ron wrote about a year ago, but uh, updating it with some news. Um, So last year, um, there was an UberX driver who was riding around San Francisco looking for a fare, um, and he hit a family. And uh, I believe he killed a six-year-old girl in the process. It was really tragic. Um, And this raised... A, un, an unexpected and sort of worrisome issue, which was that it lo- became apparent that there was a big insurance gap for Uber drivers. Um, a lot of them are basically, when they don't have the app on, riding around, t- supposedly covered by their own personal uh, you know, car insurance uh, policy. When they were actually with a passenger, when they were actually with a fare, they were covered by Uber's insurance. But... When they were looking for fares, when they had the app on, but they were looking and didn't quite have a passenger yet, they were covered by nobody. Um, Worse yet, 
it became uh, it, it soon became clear that because, many because of these drivers their personal, were lying to their, their personal insurance was saying about you're the working. fact that they were working for Uber because they were worried their policies would be canceled if somebody thought they were working as a commercial driver. Essentially, um, this you know this this is kind of frightening because the reason you have car insurance is that if you hurt somebody, there is somebody who can then pay. There is somebody who can be responsible for the liability. And suddenly, you have all these commercial drivers who are doing a lot of driving, going around not covered. Um, there's been sort of an update, though, which is a bit of good news, which is that um, Allstate is now actually developed a product for these drivers, is now essentially selling insurance for Uber drivers, for Lyft drivers. And so I guess my question here is, I mean, leaving aside the obvious tragedy, or I don't leave aside, I mean, there, there is the obvious tragedy of what happened to that little girl, for instance, and the fact that Uber, by kind of pushing uh, maybe – maybe pushing its drivers out there into the market before they figured out how they were going to handle this insurance issue um, may have created these problems. At least now, there, there's been some sort of innovation that is going to help make this business run better. I mean, does the, and I'm wondering, does this solve, uh, Ron, does, does the fact that there is now a product out there um, being sold by a major insurer kind of alleviate the concerns? Um, was this the market working? Was this a dysfunctional market? I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm reasonably sure that Allstate developed that product as a result of some legislation that was passed in California several months ago that required uh, these drivers to have insurance. So um, the legislation was actually supported uh, by the insurance industry. And so, um, you know, the uh, the legislation, you know, in effect made uh, the market for this product that I think all sorts of people, uh, perhaps um, Uber and Lyft uh, included, if you get them behind closed doors, uh, you know, wish existed uh, in the first place. Um, you know, look, this is really tricky, right? Because these drivers are in four different situations over the course of you know, as little as a half an hour, right? They're doing regular driving in their personal cars. So then all of a sudden they decide they want to pick up a fare. So they turn the app on. They're looking for a fare, but they don't have anybody in it yet. Then they have a fare and they're going to get that fare. And then the passenger gets in the car. So those are four very different kinds of situations. And their personal insurance companies did not anticipate that those last three situations would ever exist. And they don't want to cover that. Um, so you know, it makes perfect sense to me that this, um, you know, legislation came about. Uh, the representative in California, the state representative uh, who came up with the legislation, who was the primary sponsor, said that not once in her career has any individual or institution ever fought her harder in public and in private uh, than Uber did to try and keep this insurance requirement from being on the books. Uh, Uber is scared to death that drivers will become aware uh, of the coverage gaps, that the public will become aware of it, uh, and they know how costly it will be um, for somebody to have to pay the bill for these things. And uh, So you know, how expensive is this insurance compared to regular car insurance? I mean, now that the product exists, is it much more expensive? Jordan, have you seen uh, the numbers? No, I have not seen yeah, the numbers. It's not expensive. According to the AP, it's, this is what amazed me. It's 15 to $20 a year on average. Um, that's it. Uh, and it's specifically to fill that gap. So it's not, it's not covering every situation, but it's just a little – I mean, 20 bucks a year – that's what kind of amazes me about yeah, all this. Does that sound right to you? Maybe. Does that sound right yeah. to you for somebody who's driving 20, 40, 60, 80 hours a week? Uh, and it, I guess it, it costs it's a question of what the average 20 bucks means. for that rider? Yeah, there are some drivers who, you know, only do this a, a, a couple of hours each week. Um, but uh, that seems rather low, right? If you think about the, the risk. They, yeah. might, they might be averaging over all Uber-like Uber, enrolled drivers, in which case many of them do not do not drive very often. But if I could, I'd like to mention, um, I, was I was curious about this very issue a couple of weeks ago. So I looked up um, how people were dealing with this gap in insurance um, before it was announced that, it, that it's been filled. And I found a, a few web pages of Uber and Lyft drivers giving each other tips on how to fake out the their personal insurance claims. So they would say things like, oh, turn off the app and then wait an hour before you file the claim and then your personal insurance will kick in. And they would say, never never text that you're an Uber driver because um, you know, your insurance company will check your so social media profile. So they had you know, 
know, I guess the, the, my concern back then, and now it's been resolved, my concern was that actually all of our car insurance rates are going to go up because of Uber drivers. But it seems to have been resolved. Well, has so it been I guess what resolved. I'm wondering here. I mean, the question which yeah, well, I have, wait, so, hang on, because the, the, the big question which I have, is this insurance which Uber is going to just buy for its drivers, or is it literally on the drivers to buy it? Because if it's on the drivers to buy it, and they don't buy it, then nothing's been resolved at all, right? Yeah, when the law was passed, I you know, I asked that question very specifically of Uber, whether they were going to pay for the whole thing or for part of the premium or for none of it all. And, um, you know, they uh, did not have an answer to that question at that point. Uh, I, I assume they're going to have to get it settled reasonably soon because I believe the law goes into effect July 1st. So there's going to need to be some mechanism by which, uh, uh, you know, there's confirmation that everybody has the coverage that they're supposed to be. And my guess is that rather than trying to herd, what is it that they say that they have seven zillion drivers on the road just in the <laughs> yes, state of California. I, I, I think it's a, quadri- <laughs> yeah. a, a quadrazillion. Right. I, my guess is that um, you know they're going to have to buy it just in one fell swoop because otherwise uh, they're not going to be able to be sure that everybody has it. Um, so um, you know that's the situation they're in. But I, I would say that the you know the problem has not been solved by a long shot, right? Because this is just California. Uh, these drivers are not just all over the country now, but all over the world. And that's not even talking about um, you know, the insurance gap that exists for Airbnb hosts, uh, which is its own thing that is not unrelated to this one. Because what we're having in this gig economy is a whole new level of um, self-employment has become much, much more common, much lower dollar values. The gig economy, sometimes it's just like 10 bucks here, 20 bucks there. And the whole insurance industry is just not set up to like insure those you know small dollar value um work gigs i and, do wonder that's if, bigger than uber well i do wonder if a company like uber given that allstate came out with this policy if uber had ahead of time approached an insurer and said can we work with you to create something for our drivers you know w- would that have worked? And I have to assume that they would have. I mean, maybe not initially when they were sort of a nothing company five years ago, but now, I mean, in the last few years at least, I, I have to imagine that Allstate would have said, sure, we will come up with something if there's a giant market for it. Run. Yeah, they absolutely have been having these conversations behind the scenes, as has Airbnb. There are people in these organizations that have spent years trying to sort this out. And, you know, to their defense, um, the insurance companies care about data. They are run by actuaries or former actuaries. They want to know the history and they want, you know, billions of data points. And the problem is, is that, you know, we don't have a lot of evidence of what has happened with, you know, these kind of semi-professional drivers using their own cars and what sort of performance they have on the road. Same thing is true with, um, you know, people dying of carbon monoxide poisoning and Airbnb rentals. Um, We just don't know enough in part because, uh, you know, you alluded to all of the insurance fraud that's going on. Well, it is going on, right? So the insurance companies and Airbnb, uh, in many cases, and uh, Uber and Lyft, they don't actually know how many accidents they have or how many people are dying because, you know, quite often it's, uh, you know, it's not reported to them, or at least the accidents are, the the dead bodies the companies know about. So we are going to move on to the numbers round. Uh, Kathy, what's your number? My number is 10. I was wondering exactly how many people were running for president on the Republican ticket. Um, And I I looked at Wikipedia, which takes care of that count. And it turns out there's 10 officially, but then there's another 11 kind of in the wings thinking about it or almost about to do it. So in in particular, Scott Walker, Chris Christie, Jeb Bush, um, all and oh, and Donald Trump, they're they're part of the 11. And then there's 10 actually running. So that's a, a total of 21 possible candidates, which is seemingly crazy. And by the way, the the, uh, the appropriate numbers for the Democratic ticket is four officially and then five uh, on the wings. So it's a lot smaller. There are five in the wings for the Democrats? And, and in the wings is defined pretty generously. That's, yeah, I can't. Anyway. That's me. I'm, I'm going to run as a Democrat. And I think it includes oh, Felix, Mike Bloomberg as well. <laughs> We're going to have to up Felix, that number to 10. Or, you're going to have to show your birth certificate, though. I think people are going to demand <laughs> that. <laughs> like, I really don't think you're going to be able to get away with. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Uh, Ron, what's your number? My number is one half or roughly one half. That's the uh, amount by which the number of 
teenagers in America, uh, uh, the number that have paid employment has actually fallen in just the last 10 or 15 years. You know, we are uh, getting into summer job season here and fewer teenagers have paid work than they used to. And I am trying to figure out exactly why and learn a little bit more about some of the cooler jobs they do have, the sorts of jobs that we might all want our kids to have when they are old enough to work. So half as many teenagers are working today as worked just 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, a little bit under half. Um, the number has fallen uh, a fair bit. Um, and Is that helicopter parenting? Well, you know, you say that with a smirk. I know that because you're in the room with me here. Uh, listeners can't hear, can't uh, see the smirk. There's but I always a smirk. That it is here. Just always assume that whenever Felix is talking, there's a smirk. I think that there is no small number of upper middle class and above parents who think that college admissions officers devalue paid work, that the kids should be involved with enrichment after school and in the summer and not working as camp counselors or in the service industry. And I think those parents who think that are wrong. My number is 30, um, which is if you are a woman and you're on the pill, you are 30% more likely to take all of your pills when you are meant to take all of your pills if you get a one-year supply at a time than if you just get a one-month or a three-month supply at a time. And so Oregon has now passed this law, is in the process of passing this law, um, basically mandating anyone who's on the pill in Oregon to be able to get a one-year supply if they want it. It makes perfect sense because, you know, we're busy, we run out, we don't have time to refill, and it's a pain. And it's, it's just a really, really easy way of making birth control much more effective. Makes sense. And finally, <laughs> I know, listeners, you've been waiting for this number all along. Jordan, don't disappoint me. So uh, my number is uh, 400 million. Um, oh, it's that number. It's that number. I bet a bunch yes. of listeners already know this number. So that's the number. That That's how many dollars uh, John Paulson, the billionaire hedge fund manager, donated to uh, Harvard University uh, to endow its school of engineering. Um, this has caused a minor uproar on the internet, as John Paulson's uh, donations tend to. He previously gave $100 million to Central Park, which I believe, Felix, you referred to it as the best endowed park in the world, or most lavishly endowed park in the world, or something along those lines. It's also his back garden. It is his back garden. You know, I, I didn't mind that one so much, because I, I grew up on Central Park, uh, so I, had some, I, I personally like didn't feel quite as offended by it, but I realized I was in the minority there, uh, very much biased. Um, but so, Harvard, why are people upset about uh, his donation to Harvard? Well, Harvard is already uh, the, the country's richest university. It's a $36 billion endowment. And it, you know, it's capable of doing things like giving a free ride to any kid who makes, whose parents make less than $65,000. You're not really getting much of a margin. You're not doing much marginal good by giving more money to Harvard generally. The but this isn't thing- about doing marginal good. Yeah, so, well, so, the, thing, yeah. the thing which really annoys me about yeah. this yeah. is that – it's a consumption good. This isn't yes. really a philanthropic donation so much as it. he's buying the naming rights. Absolutely. So, yes. so this guy, Francis Doyle III, is going to be the, get this, the inaugural John A. Paulson Dean of the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and, Appli- and Applied Sciences. It's... He's buying naming rights. Yes. And the, and fine. You know, he has $400 million. He can spend his $400 million however he likes, and that includes buying naming rights. But the thing which sticks in my craw is that the rest of us have a hundred and some million dollar tax expenditure. Yes. Because of Harvard's nonprofit status. If he wants to spend his money on naming rights, he's more than welcome to do it. Just don't make me give up my taxes so that he can do that. So I will say the 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 one defense here, and I I half believe this, but I'm going to put it up anyway. And some people believe it much more uh, uh, forcefully. Uh, Mark Andreessen went on a whole uh, Twitter rant about this, but is that he's not really just generally throwing money at Harvard. He is endowing an engineering school that is doing some very cool work. So he's essentially giving money to research. 
And I don't think if you frame it that way, as many people would object as terribly. The question is, again, do you get your biggest, the biggest bang for your buck by funding research at Harvard or maybe at a, another state school that could do more to scale up with it? Whereas and Har- in general, you don't get bang for the buck by putting money into any endowment because the way the endowments work is you only spend 5% of the money per year. So come on, let's just spend the money on research rather than spending 5% of the money on research. Ron, you're the metaphilanthropist around here. What's your, do you have a soundbite view of endowments and universities? Uh, look, I'm all about the personal finance angle. And the thing that has always given me great pause is the fact that we uh, give people tax breaks for donations to incredibly well-endowed institutions, whether it's uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, another favorite uh, uh, location and destination of um, uber-wealthy people's dollars. Um, you know, I think it's true for universities. Uh, you know, I wonder about it too, uh, you know, with churches and synagogues and other houses of worship, right? Um, we're supposed to have a separation between church and state in this country. And, you know, we give deductions and including ones for um, you know sort of palatial uh, churches and synagogues uh, all over the country uh, and so you know that's the part that uh, that makes me uh, just a little bit itchy yeah if 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 there wasn't this whole tax deduction then I think yeah people would maybe be a bit more rational about some of these donations. Well, quick um, question about that, though. Is there a way to – just from a policy perspective, I don't want to keep the episode going for too much longer. But just for sake of argument, is there any way that you could somehow eliminate the tax deduction for institutions that have these giant endowments and would probably attract these vanity donations anyway just so people can put their name on the building while maintaining the tax deduction for things like food banks and, and charities that really do need all the help they can? Of uh, course. How, so how do, you, how do you make that division in the law? Do you just say if you've got an endowment above X, we don't preserve the ta- – there's no tax break? Well, yeah, or or you, just, you just carve out, you know, as Ron said, the, the houses of worship and the universities and you say – and the – art museums and all of the other things which you're still welcome to give your money to it's just we're not going to give you a tax break for doing it anyway i think that's really all we have time for this week thank you so much for listening to slate money do subscribe to the show you can find us by searching for slate money in the itunes store and leave us a review do please that comes in very handy write to us our email address is slate money at slate.com So, the producer this week was Audrey Quinn, helped massively by Jennifer Lai, who actually recorded the whole thing. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer is Andy Bowers. The entire network is Panoply, which can be found at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.